I'm Barbara Humpton, CEO of Siemens USA, and I'm an optimist. And if you come along with me on this journey, you're gonna see infrastructure in a whole new way as a tool for building a society that's more equitable, resilient, and sustainable. Good morning. I'm James Hellman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, September 9th. In today's news, the Justice Department moves to take over a defamation case against President Trump. The White House lawn and Rose Garden are being regrassed because of damage caused by the Republican convention. And another Facebook engineer quits in protest, saying the social network has become a haven for hate. But first, the big idea. The number of new coronavirus cases being reported daily peaked above 70,000 in July and has been falling ever since. The decline now seems to be slowing, with the daily number of new cases hovering near 40,000 for more than a week. That's one sign that the infection may be leveling off. Although, that is good news. The numbers suggest continued high levels of infection and a long road ahead particularly as cold weather and the flu season approach. Without a vaccine or a major advance in treatment, significant reductions in new cases will probably require voluntary or mandated changes in behavior that experts say are increasingly unlikely six months into this public health crisis. Tony Fauci, the chief expert for infectious disease at the National Institutes of Health, warned in an interview with The Washington Post last night that eight states are at high risk for spikes in new cases. They are North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, Iowa, Arkansas, Missouri, Indiana, and Illinois. Fauci told my colleagues Ann Guerin and Rachel Weiner that the surge in cases in the Midwest, as cases in the South continue to decline, makes the contagion almost like, quote, playing a game of whack-a-mole. Here's another way to think about it. Michael Osterholm, the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research at the University of Minnesota in my home state, says it no longer makes sense for us to talk about waves of the virus, you know, like the first wave followed by the second wave. Instead, Michael says, we're going to keep seeing spikes followed by plateaus. He says, you should just think of this as a big forest fire of coronavirus, and it's going to burn hot wherever there's human wood to burn. If you don't put the fire out completely and then you walk away from it, it's going to start burning again in days. And in the race for a cure, researchers hit a speed bump yesterday. Maybe a roadblock. We're not sure yet. A large phase three study testing a COVID vaccine that's being developed by AstraZeneca and the University of Oxford at dozens of sites across the U.S. has been put on hold due to a suspected serious adverse reaction in a participant in the United Kingdom. AstraZeneca, which has been a frontrunner in the fight for a vaccine, said in a statement that the company's standard review process triggered a pause to vaccination to allow review of safety data. Stat News reports that the nature of the adverse reaction and when it happened are still unknown, though the participant is expected to live. The drug maker described the pause as a routine action which has to happen whenever there's a potentially unexplained illness in one of the trials. Separately, the chief executives of nine drug companies, including AstraZeneca, pledged yesterday not to seek regulatory approval before the safety and efficacy of their experimental coronavirus vaccines have been established in these phase three clinical trials. That's good news. The document is an extraordinary effort 
to bolster public faith in the vaccine amid President Trump's continuing pressure campaign to introduce one before Election Day or to convince people that one is on the verge of being ready, even if it's not. Now, a lot of you are parents, and I hear from so many about how hard this back-to-school process has been. Know that you're not alone. These are hard times. A new estimate from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development warns that global economic output could decline by 1.5% over the rest of the century because of disruptions to schooling caused by the pandemic. In the United States alone, the OECD estimate says that might mean a total economic loss equivalent to $15.3 trillion. One of the challenges a lot of parents are experiencing is that it's hard to get their kids tested for the virus when they're feeling sick. Few sites will test children. Even in large cities with dozens of test sites, parents are being forced to drive long distances and call multiple centers to track down one accepting children. Today's New York Times reports that the age limits for testing vary widely from place to place. Los Angeles offers public testing without any age minimum, while San Francisco, in the same state, initially saw only adults, but now has just begun offering tests to children 13 and older. Dallas set a cutoff of five years old to get a test. Washington, D.C. decided not to test young children at its public sites because children have nearly universal health coverage in the city, meaning they could be tested at a pediatrician's office. But parents are finding that pediatricians' offices appear to have limited testing capacities and are often declining to issue tests. College reopenings also continue to be problematic. More than 2,000 students and staff are now in isolation at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville after fraternity members sidestep testing and covertly threw parties. The number of active COVID cases on campus soared during that time, rising from 126 to 600. In Los Angeles County, last night, officially barred trick-or-treating and costume parties for Halloween because of the pandemic. To celebrate Halloween next month, people are being told that they can go to Halloween-themed dinners at local restaurants or scary movie nights at drive-in theaters, as long as those businesses comply with existing restrictions. But authorities say they will aggressively enforce their ban on trick-or-treating. What strange times we're living through. Finally, let me finish the big idea with a cautionary tale from Italy. Six months ago, Bergamo was a startling warning sign of this virus's fury, a city where sirens rang through the night and military trucks lined up outside the public hospital to ferry away the dead. Bergamo has dramatically curtailed the virus's spread, but it's now offering a new warning, this one about the long aftermath where recoveries are proving incomplete and sometimes excruciating. Those who survived the peak of the outbreak in March and April are now testing negative. The virus is officially gone from their systems. But when the hospital asks patients if they feel cured, half of the survivors say no. Bergamo doctors tell Chico Harlan and Stefano Petrilli, our two reporters based in Italy, that the disease clearly has full-body ramifications, but leaves wildly differing marks from one patient to the next, and in some cases, few marks at all. Among the first 750 patients that have been screened, some 30% have lung scarring and still are struggling to breathe. This many months later, the virus has left another 30% with problems linked to inflammation and clotting such as heart abnormalities and artery blockages. A few are still at risk of organ failure. 
This virus is no joke. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this hump day. Number one, the Justice Department intervened last night on behalf of Donald Trump in a defamation suit brought by a woman who accuses him of rape. The Justice Department's filing moves the matter to federal court and says that Attorney General Bill Barr wants to make the U.S. government, rather than Trump himself, the defendant in the case. This maneuver essentially guarantees that there will be no resolution to the litigation until after the election, pushing back a potentially problematic discovery process for the president, especially if his DNA matches the specimen on the clothes that journalist E. Jean Carroll was wearing that day and is kept. In filings last night in federal court in Manhattan, the Justice Department asserted that Trump was, quote, this is a quote, acting within the scope of his office as president of the United States when he denied during interviews in 2019 that he raped Carol more than two decades ago in a New York City department store dressing room because, as he put it, she is, quote, not my type. Carol sued Trump for defamation over those denials in November. Barr's latest maneuver removes the case, at least for now, from state court in New York, where a judge last month rejected Trump's bid for a delay and put Carroll's team back on course to get a DNA sample and an under oath deposition from the president. This also means that Justice Department lawyers will essentially be working as Trump's defense attorneys. That means you, the taxpayer, will be on the hook for any potential damages and not to mention the legal fees, especially if the U.S. government is allowed to stand in for Trump. Winning damages against the government would be more unlikely than in a suit against Trump, as the notion of sovereign immunity gives the government and its employees broad protection from lawsuits. Citing the Federal Tort Claims Act, the Justice Department said that Barr has the authority under federal law to move a case like this one to federal court if he certifies that a federal employee was acting within the scope of their job during an incident. This is just the latest proof point of how Barr has hyper-politicized the Justice Department. DOJ is intended to be the people's lawyer, not to do the president's personal bidding this way. Number two, the White House says that Trump's re-election campaign is going to pay the price to replace the sod on the White House's South Lawn and in the Rose Garden after causing significant damage to the greenery late last month from large crowds and heavy equipment used for Republican National Convention festivities. Trump's unprecedented decision to stage overtly political events on public property, which drew complaints that the Trumps were using the People's House for personal gain, continues to reverberate weeks later. The president has been transported to Joint Base Andrews for recent flights via motorcade rather than by helicopter because Marine One cannot land on the South Lawn during the construction and repairs. In addition, White House staff members have been keeping journalists from seeing the work underway in the Rose Garden and on the South Lawn by forcing them to use alternative venues. Now, we'll believe that the campaign is reimbursing the White House when we see the receipts. Number three, Facebook software engineer Ashok Trandwani has watched with growing unease as the platform has become a haven for hate. Yesterday morning, Trandwani quit in a blaze of glory by sending an all-staff 1,300-word email explaining the decision. 
The resignation letter was bristling with links to bolster its claims and scathing in its conclusions. Chandwani specifically cited Facebook's role in fueling genocide in Myanmar, and more recently, violence in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Facebook did not remove a militia group's event encouraging people to bring guns to protests ahead of fatal shootings last month, despite hundreds of complaints ahead of time. Facebook chief executive Mark Zuckerberg has called that a operational mistake. The letter also cited Facebook's refusal to remove a post by Trump in May saying, quote, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, and dismissed the company's response to civil rights issues as mere public relations maneuvers. One turning point for Chadwani came when Facebook's most senior Republican, the D.C.-based policy chief, Joel Kaplan, appeared as a visible on-screen supporter of Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh during his Senate confirmation hearing in October 2018. Kaplan defended his support of Kavanaugh, one of his closest friends, but the affiliation continues to rankle many at Facebook, especially after the nominee was accused of sexual assault by Christine Blasey Ford. Kaplan has been a strong internal advocate for Facebook being what he likes to call politically neutral, but several current and former employees say that in practice, Kaplan's approach means favoring Republicans generally and Trump specifically. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, September 9th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tune in to the Optimistic Outlook podcast at Siemens.com optimist.